0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel.
1: If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 25. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience.
0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Good to have you here. Thanks for coming and joining us at the 8 o'clock service. I know many of you uh, would much rather be at the 945 service, Uh, I moved houses this week, and this morning I felt this uh, uh, the the hatred for 8 a.m. ever more increasingly after the exhaustion of this week, which makes me appreciate you all more for being here at 8 o'clock this week to make room. Last week, our 945 was just overflowing. There wasn't room for people to sit. So thanks for making room um, at that one by coming to this, and then some will come to the to the later one. So we appreciate that. If you're a guest, welcome to Emmaus. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here on behalf of our pastors. Man, it's a joy to have you with us. We, we hope that you leave here encouraged by um, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We'd love to talk with you after the service. If you have, a, if you have any questions about Emmaus or any questions about Jesus, um, or even just to get to know you, uh, stop by the Connect table out in the lobby. We'd love to meet you, talk with you, and, uh, and connect with you that way. Uh, hey, uh, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to pray for us, and we're just going to dive in. We joked with our elders this week that we uh, made a grave mistake of giving us this uh, portion of text all in one sermon. Uh, We could spend um, half a year on Romans 8 alone, uh, and so we're just going to pray, we're going to dive into this, and we're going to kind of uh, take more of a 20,000-foot view of a few pieces of this as we go through this beautiful, beautiful passage. So let's do that. Jesus, we thank you for your grace, and I thank you for this word. I thank you for the encouragement that it is to our souls. I pray that, Spirit, today you would encourage us, that you would bring assurance to us, that you would give rest to our spirit. Spirit, would you speak through these words of Paul about the work of Christ that is applied to us by the Father who has adopted us so that we might have hope in our suffering. We pray these things in your name, amen, amen. Today we're gonna to see within this passage this beautiful image of the Spirit's role in our assurance. There be three, or really two portions of this passage and then uh, a linking verse or a linking idea that links the two together. On first firsthand, they, they might not both appear to be the same topic, but this one verse um, links both of them together. In the first half of our passage, we're going to see that the spirit has this key role in strengthening us with assurance that we are God's children, right? That the the spirit actually plays a part and one of his primary roles within our life is to assure us who are the children of God that we are the children of God. What a beautiful gift that God didn't just leave us on our own to question and wonder, but he gave us his spirit within us so that we might be assured that we're his children. The second half of the passage this morning actually talks about suffering and how if we suffer, when we suffer, our suffering pales in comparison to the glory that we're going to receive as sons and daughters of God, those of us who are Christians. And these two pieces might not look like they go together that closely, yet there's a verse right in the middle at the end of verse 17 It says, provided that we know that we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. This idea of assurance that we are children of God and this idea of our suffering alongside of Christ are intertwined and cannot be pulled apart. So we're gonna journey through this first verse 12. 12 and 13. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul begins this section or continues this section of chapter 8 into this portion of chapter 8 with this reoccurring thing that we see all throughout Romans. Right. So far we have seen that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we've been set free from that. We have seen we have died to sin and we are alive to Christ. And now this, this illustration or this image he's trying to paint for us of our freedom from sin comes into this area of debt. Something I know a church are, with the age of our people is very familiar with, right? This, this debt, this weight, this burden that you have to pay back. And he goes, you were in debt to sin. You owed this master of sin a payment, a great payment, a payment you could not pay back. And yet the payment has been forgiven. The debt has been forgiven. You've been freed from this. You're no longer debtors to this sin. You do not owe it another check, so don't keep paying it. Right, just buying another house this week. I'm, we're, we're at this point, I'm like, okay, here's another mortgage. And I, I, I'm longing for that day when I, I've, I've not even paid my first payment on it. I'm longing for the day that that last payment is written. But it's one of these ideas that so many of us, we get to that point where our debt has been forgiven and we just keep writing checks to that debt master. right? It's as if you owe Wells Fargo this money and you finally, after 30 years, pay it off. And then the next month, you're like, I'll just pay him again. And you just write him another check. And you're like, why are you writing Wells Fargo another check? You paid it off. I I don't know. It's just become normal now. It's it's just kind of, I'm used to it. I don't even know if I want to stop writing them a check feels comforting. It feels like home. As for many of us, we live in that same place with our sin. Right? We've been freed from that debt to sin. And yet we keep writing checks to try to pay it off by going back into slavery to it. Paul begins by reminding us, you are no longer in debt to sin. But then notice what he says. He says this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, right? Sin brings death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Paul brings forth for us this beautiful idea of what it looks like for us to battle and war against sin. Because so often we hear this idea or we we express this idea that we have to be killing our sin. Right? Be killing your sin or sin will be killing you idea which is true, but I'm afraid that many of us, and and let me speak specifically to men that I see battle with like addiction to lust and pornography. Let's just use that as an example. I see many who try to beat the sins that have made us their master, that we have sold ourselves into debt into. We try to beat those simply by mustering up self-discipline. We try to beat them simply by putting protection on our computers, software on our computers. We try to beat them simply by by disciplining our mind, by not focusing on that, or by not looking at things that that attract that. And we try to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, discipline ourselves really well, and beat whatever sin it is that is entangling us. And yet Paul gives us this beautiful phrase here, this life-giving phrase, this critical phrase for us in our fight against sin. He says, but if by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is a way to fight your sin that is void of the Spirit, and there is a way to fight your sin that is full of the Spirit. And they will have vast differences in your outcome as you fight your sin. For the unbeliever, there's no way to fight according to the Spirit. There's no way for the unbeliever to ultimately overcome the, the entrapment and the slavery of sin without surrendering themselves to Christ. The unbeliever might be able to discipline themselves to beat an addiction or or an act for a period of time, but ultimately that sin just comes out somewhere else. But for the believer who fights according to the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, there is life that comes from that. Now, this passage does not speak directly to what that looks like, It doesn't speak directly to what it looks like to fight by the power of the Spirit but I want to give you just a little bit, just a a sampling of, of what that might look like. This is not original to me. Stole it from another pastor. I borrowed it from another pastor. Four steps that it looks like for you to fight according to the Spirit, fight your sin according to the Spirit. First is confession. Fighting sin according to the Spirit always comes from confession. To attempt to beat sin without confessing to God and to others is not evidence of fighting your sin according to the Spirit and doesn't promise healing or freedom. It says in James 1.5, confess your sins to one another and be healed. So if you look at your life and you're avoiding confession, you're avoiding bringing your sin into the light to others, you're avoiding the humiliation that comes with that, and yet trying to conquer that sin, you're not actually fighting according to the Spirit. Scripture calls us to confess our sins. Secondly, total surrender. Fighting your sin according to the Spirit is not a negotiated settlement with God. The Holy Spirit is a person that we surrender to. Full stock and barrel, we give all that we have into this relationship. In our text today, it tells us we're not a debtor to the flesh. And it doesn't come right out and say, but you are a debtor to God or, or to the Spirit or to Christ. And yet that idea would play out with what we've seen in Romans. You're not, you're, you're now dead to sin. You're no longer alive to sin, but instead you're a, alive to Christ. You're no longer a slave of sin, but you are a slave of obedience. There's this idea of total surrender when you're fighting according to the spirit, which means you don't take shortcuts. You don't try to, to lessen the blow. You don't try to, to walk into your sin and face the temptation that you're facing and the sin that you're engulfed in and try to get out of it unscrapped. Unscraped, You go at it and you completely surrender to the Spirit and all that that looks like with the church around you to walk you through that pain. Third, reassurance in the gospel. But the Spirit never breaks our hold, or the sins hold on our lives with condemnation. The Spirit breaks sins hold in our lives with freedom of the gospel. It reminds us of the gospel. It brings us back to the gospel, to the text that we looked at last week. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't beat sin by by heaping judgment upon yourself as a follower of Christ. You you beat sin by, by receiving the grace of the gospel upon yourself and walking in freedom from it. And if your desire to beat your sin or if your attempt to beat your sin is is this self-loathing and hatred beat down by the sin that is weighing upon you, then you actually find that that you're probably not doing it according to the Spirit because the Spirit's going to remind you of the gospel and use the gospel to encourage you forward. And fourth, the reading and the memorization of Scripture. Scriptures say that the Scripture is the sword of the Spirit. It is the weapon of the spirit. The spirit brings back scripture as he did to Christ in the desert and temptation brings scripture specifically for your temptation that you have read and that you have meditated on and that you have thought and the spirit uses scripture to battle the temptation within you so that you are free from that. So if there is sin entangling you, if there is sin that you're still writing checks to, though you have been freed by the, by the blood of Christ, confess, Give total, be totally surrendered to the Spirit, whatever it costs you to walk in freedom. Find reassurance in the gospel and come to the scriptures daily, often, and reading and meditating and memorization so that the Spirit has that weapon to use to reassure you and encourage you and strengthen you in your temptation. Let's read on. Let's begin again in verse 12 so we catch the flow. So then, brothers, we are debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, We want to see this in context, and so we briefly steal thunder from next week's passage in verse 29. In 29, it says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The goal, the Spirit's actions in this passage, what the Spirit's working towards, why he's assuring us and what he's doing within us to lead us is he's leading us to this point of verse 29 when we become the image of Christ. When we look more like Christ, when we act more like Christ, when we think more like Christ, we love more like Christ, he's leading us into Christ-likeness. Spirit's leading us to that place. This is this goal of his for us. And so when we look here in, in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit, where, where, where is he leading us? He's leading us into more Christ-likeness. So if you say, well, do I, how do I know if I'm led by the Spirit? Because it's those who are led by the Spirit who are the sons of God. Is he leading you into more Christ-likeness? Are you seeing yourself? And better yet, is the body of Christ who's around you seeing you become more like Christ? Understanding there's days you look less like him. There's hours you sound less like him. There's moments you don't appear anything like him. But the trajectory of your life is it ascending to look more like Christ. It's really easy for us to trick ourselves both positively and negatively if we're relying only on our own perspective. Some of you are prone to think you're much better than you really are. You're much more like Christ than you really are. And some of you are prone to absolutely beat yourselves up over this. You pick apart every area you're not like him and see no areas you are. It's the importance of the body of Christ around you to walk in true community who can see that and go, I see you walking towards Christ. Or for the body of Christ to go, you know what? Like, I'm concerned. The direction you're walking and have been walking appears as if you're walking away from Christ, and that's a concern because you might not be a son of God." He says, he has not given us the spirit of slavery so that we may live in fear, but the spirit of adoption to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Dada, Papa. Slavery to sin always leads to fear. When you're a slave to sin, you must obey sin because the only way that you can see yourself surviving is to keep grasping for more for yourself. So you grasp for more sin, for more lust, for more greed, for more pride, for more possessions. You, you, you push others down and elevate yourself because it's this rat race to try to get ahead and stay ahead and survive. It's basically survival mode. This leads us to just this lifestyle of fear. When you're a slave to sin, but you also believe in God. So, so perhaps those of you who are, who are Christians, who, who've put your faith in Christ, you are his son, but you're living in a lifestyle of sin. There's often in that time, in that period of your life, just fear that sets in. When you're writing checks to the, to the debtor that you're no longer in debt to, there's fear that sets in. What if I'm found out? What if people know? Does God really love me? Can he really accept me? Am I really his child? This isn't, This isn't the setting for a calm, restful heart. It's the setting for an anxious, worried, fearful heart. When you're a slave to sin, you live in isolation from God the Father, right? There's this separation in relationship. Not in justification if you're his child, but in your relationship with him, and that causes fear. Isolation always brings fear. He says, but you, the children of God who have placed your faith in Jesus, you have received the spirit of adoption, you have a father, a, a heavenly father, who's adopted you and made you his own. A child with a father, with a good father, with a loving father. This, this child with this daddy, this papa, this, this child has security. And rest. This child knows that dad is there. And when they wake up in the morning, dad's not going to be gone. Or when they mess up tonight, dad's not going to kick them out of the house child knows that dad's going to provide for them. When they need a hug, there's a hug. A hand, there's a hand. When there needs to be comfort, there's comfort. When there needs to be discipline, there's discipline. A child with a loving and good father rests in the father's strength, in his kindness, in his protection, in his provision. And I realize for many of us in this room, we don't have that image of an earthly father, so it's really hard to grasp that image of a heavenly father. Jerry Packer says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If that's not the thought that prompts and controls his whole outlook on life, he does not understand Christianity very well. How does it set in your heart the idea that God is your loving, good, providing, caring for disciplining father. Verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit testifies in our spirit that we are God's children. Now, within this passage, it shows us some ways that the Spirit does this, that the Spirit testifies within our soul. Because because when it says the Spirit testifies within our spirit, like like the question is, what does that mean? What does that look like? Like, am am I listening for a voice? I hope not, right? Because often the voice in my own head goes, there's no way God loves you. Are we, are, we, are we like waiting for chills to go down our spine when we're in the presence of God? I hope not because I often get cheer, chills and fear and I don't at church. We're not looking for this type of experience. The scripture actually pulls out for us what, this, what the spirit does to assure us of this. One of the ways that he does this is through the evidence of our changed life. The spirit is actively working as we saw in verse 29 to make us more like Christ. And if you can look at your life and if others can look at your life and go, you're becoming more like Christ, then the spirit is testifying with our spirit. (sighs) rest, you're his child. Another way that the spirit does this is by testifying, he testifies with our spirit through increasing recognition and rest with God as our father that he continually brings within us more of a belief in this and more of a rest of this, that that he is a father. That is a good thing. It is a restful thing for us. Thirdly, the spirit testifies with our spirit. It's through the assurance of God's promises in the gospel. You start to believe his promises. I have a heavenly father. He is pleased in me. Because of Jesus, there's no condemnation for me, even though I sinned this morning before church. He is slow to anger. His love is steadfast. I am an heir of all that he has. The future glory is worth the present suffering. You begin to believe the promises of God by the power of the Spirit. Begins to testify with your spirit these ways. And this is the link. One of these promises, which we begin to believe, is this, if that we are his children, and if we are his children, we're also his heirs, verse 17. We're also his heirs. What exactly is our inheritance? What does it mean to be an heir? I, my parents were in town this week. I had the conversation with them as they're advancing in age. They talked about what the retirement plan is, what the inheritance looks like, and, and, uh, and they told me not to get too excited in that process. Right? Don't, don't get too anxious for that. When you talk about inheritance, the question is, well, what is the inheritance? I mean, because you could leave me, like, debt. You could leave me money. You could leave me at home. What is this inheritance? John Piper was helpful on this. What is this inheritance we see that he leaves us? He gives us three things. First, he says, the world. And I love the beauty of this in this moment in our culture and our history. We will receive the world as an inheritance. Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, right? If it belongs to him and we're heirs of what he has, then it comes to us. And we see this played out in Psalm 2.8. God says to his son, ask of me and I will surely give the nations to you as your inheritance. We are, that's to Christ, but we are fellow heirs with Christ. What Christ receives, we receive. Right Here's the beauty of us receiving the world. We have gone through 12 months, a calendar year now, from, from really February to February of just this unpacking where it feels like the world is slipping through the grasp of our hands. Pandemics that we can't control, racial tension that we can't get our hands and minds wrapped around, political upheaval and, and, and governments that are crumbling, friendships that are breaking apart because attentions we didn't know were there. It feels like the very grasp we had on the world around us is beginning to crumble and fall away. And how encouraging is it in the midst of a year where it feels like everything's being stripped from us and we're losing grasp on everything that he goes, it's all gonna be yours. The world is not out of control because God is in control and owns it. And he will give it to his children. Our inheritance is God himself. (laughs) Revelation chapter 21, verse three, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You know what you as his son get? You get him. If there'll be a day when you get him in a sense of, it's not even veiled. You don't even have a veiled face looking at him. There's not the, 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 the sheet or, or the barrier of sin between you and him. It's just God lives with his children. He walks with his children. He interacts with his children. You can feel his smile and his presence upon you in a way that you can't right now in our sin-filled world. You get God. We love all the blessings he gives us. How much more should we love the one who gives us the blessings? It is the greatest inheritance that we get. But thirdly, we get redeemed and glorified bodies. We'll see that in this text in a moment, Romans 8, through 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And Piper pointed out that the beautiful significance of this is our joy. How cruel would it be to receive all the blessings of God, including God himself, and yet to remain in a sin-stained, sin-affected, broken, idolatrous body? And yet he doesn't say your body is worthless, your soul will be liberated. He goes, I'm actually gonna take your broken down, beat up, soul inflicted, um, a trauma um, bearing body and I'm going to redeem it of all of that so that you can enjoy all the blessings I give you. You get to enjoy my inheritance because I'll give you the body to enjoy it. It's your gift. This is the promise that the spirit helps us to believe. And we are his children. Have this gloriously beautiful day coming when we are his heirs. But it's also slightly scary because he says we get this, verse seventeen, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, what does this mean? What does it mean that we suffer? Scripture talks about our suffering often. Just a few examples, Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That is not language of comfort, that's language of suffering. Taking up your cross and denying yourself is a pathway of suffering. 2 Timothy 3:12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a suffering that comes for living godly, for following Christ. Hebrews 12, six through seven, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. There is a suffering that comes with sonship. You don't just get to do what you want. When there is sin, there is discipline and correction, and that's a unique form of suffering itself. 1 Peter four thirteen. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Right? Suffering brings forth exultation within us. Suffering should be expected by all of us. In fact, the reality is this, church. All of us suffer. Every one of us. Your suffering may be to a greater degree than mine in certain ways, but all of us suffer. The very fact that we're born into sin, a sin-ridden world and sin-stained bodies is, is, is an act of suffering. It's not the way the world was created to be. All of creation, every man and every woman throughout all of time has suffered. We see that here in this passage. Paul gives us encouragement and he gives us hope in this suffering. He also gives us a purpose. In Romans chapter five, verse three, Paul says, not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, right? Our our sufferings, knowing that our tribulations bring about perseverance. There's a a point here that when you suffer, it brings back perseverance, builds up perseverance in you, faithfulness to God. I wanna be very careful how I talk about this. I wanna be very careful what, what you hear because I understand that some in this room have deep, hard, painful, like want to give up on life type of suffering. Like I, I sat at Panera at, the, at my table at Panera because no other coffee shops in the Northland are open. And I sat at my table at Panera on Tuesday writing this and, and literally had, had tears coming down my cheeks with your stories of suffering. With stories of my suffering, with stories of my wife's suffering, with stories of my daughter's suffering, with stories of your suffering. I won't mention your names, but specific faces and stories coming across my heart, weeping because I know the pain that you've gone through. And guys, Paul is not downplaying your suffering here either. Paul is not saying when we look here in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is not saying, hey, just suck it up. It's not that bad. Paul understands suffering. Paul lost everything when he became a follower of Christ. All of his advancement in life, everything he had put himself to and worked himself to death for, he lost all of that. And then in the pathway of following Christ, he's beaten, he's imprisoned, he's shipwrecked, he's bitten by a snake, he has friends bail on him, people betray him, people turn against him, he's stoned, he ends up being killed. Paul understands suffering. He's not downplaying it. Rather, he is highlighting the hope that we have. He's highlighting the hope that we have. Let's look at verses 18 through 25. I want to read them, and then I just want to give us an overview of them, of why, it's wor- why our suffering is worth it, and why this passage gives us hope in suffering. Paul brings forth for us a few highlights to help us in our suffering. First, everyone suffers. Everyone. Your suffering might be unique. It might be uniquely difficult. But everyone suffers. Verse 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23 all speak of all of creation's suffering. Verse 18 speaks of the present time. Verse 20, past time. Verse 22, since the beginning of suffering, all of creation has continued to suffer. And verse 21, waiting for the day that is to come. Verse 23, even we who are saved have the, and have the spirit suffer. It's not like you, you put faith in Jesus and he just removes all your suffering. There's still suffering. So all of creation, every man, every woman, every animal, every mountain and every stream, every insect and every weather pattern, the core of our earth and the sun that gives us warmth, all of creation suffers. And all of creation throughout all of time, since the beginning of suffering, has suffered. There has never been a golden age of no suffering since the first time suffering entered the world. And your faith in Jesus, though it rescues you from the penalty of sin and makes you right with God, does not remove you from suffering in this world. In fact, Scripture is clear that your faith will be the trigger for some of your suffering. Suffering that this world has will come upon you because of your faith at times. And so in a way, there's comfort. It's also heartache, but there's comfort in the fact that suffering is universal, that we all face it that God hasn't singled you out to punish you alone from everyone else. There is a comfort that comes in this. Secondly, the world was not created in suffering. Suffering had a beginning and it will have an end. The world was not created in suffering. It had a beginning and it will have an end. Verse 20 says this, creation was subjected to futility, right, to futility. And it tells us that creation was subjected to it by him who subjected it in hope. Right, creation was placed under suffering by someone in hope. So the question is, who, when did that take place? We well, we believe it took place in Genesis 3 at the fall, when sin entered the world, and God comes, and there's three, there's three hymns on the scene. There's God, there's Adam, and there's Satan, the serpent. Adam definitely didn't sin in hope for humanity. Satan didn't tempt you in hope for humanity. But God cursed us in hope for humanity. See, when sin came, God looked at the world and the sin that had accrued and the sin that had fallen upon man, that man had chosen and walked into, and he subjected the world in suffering, in hope. This can make you angry at God. All right, so you're saying God is the one who, who first subjected, brought the world into this place of suffering and can make us angry. You lose a child. You're like, how could God allow this to happen? I'll leave God, who, who wants God? You're abused. Why would God let that happen and you want nothing to do with God? You're abandoned and there's just this belief God's going to abandon you. Who would want this God? Who would, who would create a man to leave others and to abandon others? You have chronic sickness or cancer and God doesn't heal you. Why? Why would he even create a world where there is such sickness? You have to have a big view of God and a big view of sin to appreciate this and be comforted by this. See, God is altogether gloriously good and right and holy and worthy. And sin was not just a misdemeanor. Sin was a capital offense against the king of the universe. The sin of Adam and Eve was not just some small slap on the hand type of thing. It was a grand crime against the king. It was treason. It was a belief that the king is not good. It was a desire to be the king of their own lives. It was an insurrection of sovereign authority over their own decisions of what is good and evil and loving. And God said, no, I will not let this happen. Your sin is so wicked, it's so evil, it's so deathly, it's so destructive, it's so dangerous to you that I'm going to subject the world to suffering to loosen your grip on this world and remind you of your attempt at being God only leads to destruction for you. In God's kindness, he allowed suffering to enter the world so that we might remember our sin only brings death freedom through christ brings life. Romans 8 is saying when you see suffering, hate sin. Sin brings it. Perhaps your suffering is not directly the result of your sin. Right if you were abused as a child, that is not God punishing you for your sin that you did that day until you were abused. But all suffering is the result of sin entering the world. And it should stir us to hate sin and to long for the day when sin is fully wiped out and suffering is removed and life is given in full. So let me send us with these three encouragements as we follow through the rest of this passage. Number one. If you're a God's child, you ha- meaning you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've received the Spirit, then hear this, church. God is not punishing you with your suffering. If you're a God's child, he is not punishing you with your suffering. Sin brought the curse, but through faith in Jesus, Jesus has bore your curse and paid for it in his blood. Whatever way you're suffering, if you're a God's child, it is not punishment for your sin. God is not vengeful that way. He's already poured out his punishment on his son in your behalf. Instead, our suffering is like cries of childbirth, it says here. There's difference between a woman screaming in pain in the OB and a woman screaming in pain in the ER. One is a sign that there is something drastically wrong going on that could lead to death. And the other is there's life coming and it still is painful. This doesn't tell us that the child of God is being punished for the, by suffering. Rather, the child of God is being made more like Christ through suffering. It brings forth life. Doesn't mean it's good, doesn't mean God loves the suffering. He hates it and He will end it one day. But the benefit is that it brings us, makes us more like Him. Secondly, God promises that your suffering today, however great it is, cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed for Christians, for his children. You are his child, and you're still waiting on the full glory of becoming his children. This is what um, both uh, Sam and Ronnie have mentioned, this already not yet. You are his child, and you don't fully understand what it looks like and feels like and it is like to be his child yet. You've received the glory of being his child and you've not yet received the full glory of being his child. Today in your suffering and in your sin and in your doubt and in your exhaustion, you may feel like you're barely surviving as his child, a shadow of the child king. But the day, one day, the children of God will live in all of their glory. One pastor said like titans, sons of gods, we will experience and know what it is like fully one day. Thirdly, your suffering will end and your body will be redeemed. Your suffering will end and your body will be redeemed. God will redeem your body, bringing all of creation in subjection of his glory. And you will have the body and the mind and the soul that is able to receive and to enjoy the glory that God will reveal to you. This is hope-filled for us. No matter how bad our suffering is in this life, and it could be horrendous, this passage says just wait. There is a day coming, it is no more, and there is a beautiful reward of glory. So, Christians suffer. Suffer in hope, suffer in faith, suffer in belief and in prayer, suffer knowing that you're God's child, that He is pleased in you, suffer with patience knowing that the Spirit is testifying of this by making you more like Him, by strengthening your belief that God is your Father, by building a foundation of faith in God and belief in His promises. The Spirit is at work in your life if you're His child. Look to it, be encouraged, have assurance, and then suffer well, waiting in hope for the day that you will suffer no more. An unbeliever, I know it is really strange to call you to Jesus during a sermon that goes, you'll still have to suffer. And in fact, we believe God subjected the earth to suffering. I know it might sound strange to go, come to that God. But here's what I know. You are suffering. We all are. Not following God doesn't remove suffering from your life. You're still in a suffering world. The difference between the unbeliever and the believer is the believer in Jesus has hope in our suffering. And not just hope that one day things will get better. Not just hope that one day the government will fix it. Not just hope one day the cards will fall in my way. We have hope that one day God will redeem our very bodies which have suffered. So come to this Jesus and receive that hope. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for this word. I pray it is an encouragement to us. Would you strengthen and embolden your church through it? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.